All right, if you don't get a chuckle out of that, y'all aren't awake yet. The reason I showed you that video this morning is because they wouldn't let me show you the hockey video I wanted to show you so close to opening day in baseball season. Um, but with our technical world, it, you know, you always get stuff that says you got to see this. This is just amazing. Whether it's, you know, Twitter or Facebook or, you know, over the Internet, it's not unusual for me at least once a week, if not more, to get something that's like, oh, man, just just watch this. This is, this is incredible. And so I... Uh, uh, I picked that one this morning because it was just, you know, I'm sure that all that took about two hours for those guys to get that right. And I'm sure it was after a round of golf. And I'm sure they all called their wives and said, I'm working on something really important, but it's going to take a couple extra hours for us to get it done because they did not do that on the first try. I'm sure they didn't do it on the first dozen tries. Jesus is talking to his disciples in the passage we're going to look at in just a couple of minutes on uh, the day of his resurrection, the day that we now call Easter Sunday. And he is saying to them, in essence, you got to see this. You got to understand what's going on. This is amazing. The, the context of this conversation is that these disciples are brokenhearted because they thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah. And they have mistakenly assumed that he hasn't raised from the dead and their hopes have been dashed. So when Jesus says you got to see this, it's not like, hey, watch these six guys actually make the, you know, this putting trick work. It's like everything has changed. Everything is new, and you got to see this. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 27, and then I'm going to add a couple verses that aren't in your, in your program, verses 44 through 47. Easter Sunday, uh, we pick up the story with uh, Jesus uh, talking to a couple of his discouraged disciples. Hear the word of God. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. They literally stopped in their tracks and turned it. It looked at Jesus. They were, they were so stunned. Uh, they, they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then I'm going to skip over to verse 44. Same conversation is basically taking place later on in the, in the, in the evening with the 11 disciples who are gathered in a room together. 
And this is how Jesus concludes that conversation. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to, uh, to uh, what we call church on what we call Easter Sunday morning. Father, it is, uh, it is probably a custom of all of ours to uh, take time throughout the, the year to stop and reflect and to consider the spiritual aspects of our lives. Father, I pray this morning that as we come to, to worship, uh, which is a, is a verb, it describes something we do, not something we observe or watch being done, that your Holy Spirit and your word would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that we would actually worship you with our intellect this morning, that we would actually worship you with our minds as we seek to understand that which you have proclaimed to us. Lord Jesus, we, we pray that your truth would sink deep into every heart in this room. Lord, every one of us, whether we believe in God or whether we don't, whether we're somewhere in between those two and we're just not sure, we're a little bit confused, we have more questions and answers, or whether we've been disciples for a long, long time, every person in this room needs your redemptive power in our lives. Every person in this room needs a whole lot more than what I could possibly say. We hear the words of man all week long. Now we come to hear the word of God. Father, please don't only stand in the way of what you want us to know and to understand this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would teach us. Forgive me for my sin. We come to see Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, why is the Lord so excited? <laughs> well, he's excited, A, because he is the risen Christ, and his suffering is behind him. And uh, the only thing that, that is now left undone is a few housekeeping things before he ascends to the glory of the right hand of God. Uh, but he is, is excited for his disciples to learn. He's ex excited for his disciples to see something not only about him, not just that he's raised from the dead, but what that means to them. So you may be here this morning and say, okay, you know, I'll give you the resurrection, but it doesn't really have anything to do with me, and Jesus would beg to differ. He would be here saying, he is here this morning in his word saying, you got to see this. Well, what is so important that Jesus wants us to see? Well, first of all, we need to see his understanding of who he claimed to be. So our first point this morning we must see and understand that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that's a word that we use quite a bit. Uh, we use that word Christ in worship. Uh, you've probably heard it in worship. You've probably uttered that name in worship or in devotional time, or you've read it in your Bible. You might also have heard it uh, profaned and used when somebody, you know, hits their thumb with a hammer when they're trying to hit the nail or in some other way. But the word Christ technically means the Messiah, the anointed one from God, the one who was chosen by God, to be the redeemer not only of Israel, but all the world. If you listened carefully or you read along on the screen, you saw that part of the sorrow of the disciples was, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. They were looking for this one who would be called the Christ. And that's exactly how Jesus saw himself. He said to them, was it not necessary that the Christ 
the Messiah, the chosen one of God, should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, you want to see the Christ and you want to see me? Put them together. That's who I am. Later on in the evening when he is talking to the other 11 disciples, he said to them, everything written about me in the law of the prophets, excuse me, law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise, forgiveness, preaching his name. Jesus says, you got to get this. You got to see this. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a good guy. I'm not a teacher. I am the anointed one. I am the hope of every man, woman, and child walking around the planet. I am the redeemer. The other thing these verses show us is that this has been God's plan of salvation all along. He says this is written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. If, if you start your, your theological understanding of Jesus in the New Testament, you're, you're going to have a half-baked notion of Jesus. You've got to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to do that in just a minute. Jesus says, long before I was, you know, showed up at Bethlehem, <laughs> that little thing called a manger, this was the plan of God. The plan of God was to redeem mankind. His intention all along has been to save. And Moses and the Psalms and the prophets all point to me. And so you hear that and um, you say, is that accurate? Does the Old Testament really speak about Jesus? I thought, you know, he showed up in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, one of those, you know, one of those, one of those uh, gospel books. Is he really seen in the Old Testament? I'm going to do very quickly, and I mean really quickly. You're not even going to have time to write down all the references. I'm going to show you a handful of verses in the Old Testament that speak about Jesus because I want you to understand how thorough Scripture is and how, and how much it weaves together systematically. And I'm going to go down a side road for just a second. Moms and dads, you should teach your children Jesus in the Old Testament. If you haven't taught them yet, you can Google what I'm going to show you online. Uh, you can Google that online. You can pull it out. But our children need to understand that the Gospels of Jesus, the plan of God for salvation, began long before Jesus actually came to earth in human form. So, really quickly, what did Moses have to say about the Christ? Well, in Genesis 3, he writes that he would be human. Genesis 9, he writes that he would be the son of Noah, the guy who built the ark, and then his son Shem, who was in the ark with him. Later on in Genesis in 12 and 22, Moses writes that the Christ will be the son of Abraham, the one who will bless all the nations of the world is going to come from Abraham. Further on in Genesis, we learn that it comes from Jacob and then one of his sons named Judah in Genesis 49. Uh, it's clear that the Christ is going to come through him. And then in Deuteronomy 18, God is making a promise to Moses about the future generations of the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to send another one like you. I'm going to send one who is mighty in word and deed to speak to my people. That's what Moses says about the Christ. What about the Psalms and the prophets? And we looked at this passage last week. We learned that, that the uh, Messiah would be a son of Jesse. We actually studied Isaiah 11 last Sunday. Jesse was the father of David, who was the great Old Testament king in Israel. So the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. And in his earthly ministry, Isaiah tells us, he's going to perform miracles. Isaiah gives us an example of that. He says, for example, he's going to give sight to the blind. And in Psalm 72, he says, and he will speak in parables. Now, this, we're just getting warmed up here. And again, I'm just kind of going through this quick so you get the idea. 
They go on to say that this Messiah will be rejected by his own people. And again, remember the disciples. Our chief priests, our rulers, handed him over to be crucified. He went to Jerusalem on a donkey on what we now call, we celebrate as Palm Sunday. Zechariah foretold that. Betrayed by a friend and more specifically betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That information was written almost 1,000 years before Jesus came to earth. You went too quick for me. I got one more at the bottom. Go back. Thank you. Oh, no, I didn't. You, you're, you're ahead of me. Keep going. You're doing better than I am. Beaten, spat upon, considered a transgressor. Transgressor means the most vile person. You wouldn't want to be seen with them in public. Pierced, crucified, buried with the rich. None of his bones would be broken. Enemies would cast lots for his clothes. Be given vinegar and gall to drink, according to the Psalms. But his body would not see decay. The resurrection, the ascension, and his seating at the right hand of God, his glorification as his only son, were all spoken of years and years and years before Jesus took on physical form and came to earth. It's been God's plan all along for every person in this room that's here this morning to hear about his grace and his mercy and his compassion through Christ. Because if you're like me and you hear kind of that kind of data and those kind of details, you might say, well, that's really fascinating. You know, but quite, quite frankly, what does that have to do with me? How does that impact my life? I'm glad you know all that stuff, but, but I don't know that it's important for me to know it as well. The reason it's important for us to understand, it's not just fascinating statistically, but we must see the Christ, we must see Jesus in the context of our human condition. You see, to just talk about Jesus out there while ignoring the condition of your soul or ignoring the condition of my soul is to only have half of a conversation. And Jesus is talking to men who are, are brokenhearted because they had hopes for their own soul, much like you have hopes for your own soul this morning, whether you believe in God or not. And to have a conversation about Jesus, void of how it impacts my condition, is an exercise in futility. It would be like talking, I'm going to get hockey in one way or the other, because I always do. It would be like talking about the 1980 hockey win over the, over the Soviets, minus the context of the Cold War. It would just be another hockey game. It wouldn't make any sense. It would be like going to Gettysburg and looking at this amazing battlefield where, where the, the tide was turned uh, of the Civil War and looking at that battlefield without the context of the Civil War, without the context of the issues of states' rights and, and the evil of slavery in our country. Say, well, gosh, this is just a place on a big field where you know about 180,000 guys got together and duked it out for three days. <laughs> Why? We need to have context or we can't connect the dots. It won't, the conversation won't make any sense. Somebody uh, gave me an example this, uh, a couple of weeks ago that, that helps, helped ex explain what I'm, what I'm trying to get at. And uh, they sent it to me under the context of this is why men should not write advice columns. So you think about like Dear Abby or, you know, those, those advice columns, those are written by women. And this person said, this is why men shouldn't write advice columns. And it's a guy who's answering a question that a woman writes in. And the woman writes in and says, Dear John, I left the house and I went, went to work. Uh, and about eight blocks from the house, my car just stopped. It just, it just stopped. And I had plenty of gas. I tried to turn it over, tried to turn it. It just wouldn't start. I got on the phone, called my husband. He went around. I had to walk back home eight blocks. When I got home, I found out that my husband was having an affair. And that he wasn't sorry he was having an affair. It had been going on for a long time. And that he wasn't going to go to counseling. And I just don't know what to do. I'm so despondent. Can you help me? Signed, Sheila. John writes back, Dear Sheila, a car stalling after being driven a short distance can be caused by a variety of faults within the engine. 
Start by checking the debris for debris in the fuel line. If that's clear, check the vacuum pipes and the hoses and the intake manifold and also check all grounding wires. If none of this solves the problem, it could be the fuel pump. Hope this helps, John. <laughs> There's always one guy out there that makes me look better. <laughs> how, do you, how do you miss the point? Well, a lot of us spend time talking about Jesus out there. We don't mind talking about God. We don't mind talking about Jesus. Just kind of keep it over there. And Jesus says, let's talk about it in the context of the human condition. So for a couple minutes this morning, I want to look at what I'm going to call the corruption of mankind. Now, when I say corruption, I don't mean that we are completely evil. I don't mean we are as awful as we possibly could be. But when, when something is corrupted, when your body is corrupted with a flu virus, you feel it in a lot of different ways all over your body. When you have the flu, your hand doesn't go, well, I feel good. What's the matter with the rest of you? It penetrates all of your being. And while we are not as completely evil as we could be, our brokenness is holistic. It, it leaves no part unharmed. Well, what does that mean? Well, the first part of our corruption, I'm going to say, is, is the moral or the spiritual corruption, which leads us to rebellion. Our, we're morally corrupted in that if you go back and read the first three chapters of Genesis or the first two chapters of Genesis, God's plan for the world and for mankind was phenomenal, and we walked away from it. Our original parents said, God, that's great, thanks, but you know what? We'll do it our own way. We'll call you if we need you. And they rebelled against him. They wanted nothing to do with him. My wife Cindy teaches here at Kirkwood High School, and a few months ago in her study focus group, when you go into Cindy's classroom, you have to study. You can't, like, put on your headphones and listen to music. you got to catch up with your work. She had a student be very disrespectful to the point where she finally said, you're, you're going to have to go to your grade-level principal because I'm just not going to have this kind of talk in my classroom. And as the student's getting everything together, Cindy kind of says, as, you know, just a kind of a, almost a passing phrase, you know, when you're at home, do you talk to your mom like this? And the student said, when I need to. Now, that bothers us. How, how, how could someone be that disrespectful? That's exactly how you and I, apart from Christ, talk to God. If I need you, I'll let you know, and I'll talk to you in the tone of voice which I deem appropriate. Our condition is one of moral and spiritual rebellion, which leads us to a lifestyle of survival. Because now I'm on my own. Now I don't have God as a friend. Now I've got to look out for me. So I've got to, I've got to look out for number one. And even if I'm a kind person and a gracious person, this is still going to be the mindset with which I approach my life. How many people think, you know, in a, in a marriage, you've got to meet the other person, you know, 50-50. You both got to come halfway. That's the mode of survival. Jesus says, husband, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave him up for. And you go, I'm not going to do that. That's too risky. What if it doesn't work? What if I get hurt, we're in a survival mode, which ultimately leads us to guilt and shame because we look at our lives and we know that, that they're not what they should be. We know that we don't live in a manner that is always life-giving to others. We're morally and spiritually corrupt, but we're also emotionally corrupted. This leads to what I'm going to call control. Now, if I ask who's a control freak in this room, probably half, half the group might, a third might raise your hand. But if you don't think you're a control freak, trust me when I tell you that you are. <laughs> All of us want to be in charge. All of us want to be in, in control. That's part of our emotional corruption. We can't leave it to someone else. It's been fascinating to me. It, it is every time of, of the year this year when all of the, the information comes out on Discovery Channels and the magazines and all the different information about we can know or know about Jesus. 
as if the as if the you know the historical data in the scriptures is incorrect, which it isn't. It's dead on the money 100% of the time. Archaeology has proved this. But we never ask the question: Is Jesus who He says He is based on looking at our own hearts? As long as I can, I can keep the conversation out there about whether Jesus really existed, whether he really did miracles or not, well, that doesn't seem wise to the intellectual mind of the 21st century. I don't ever have to look in the mirror. I'm in control. I don't have to answer the hard questions, but that leads to isolation. It leads to me being the final authority. And again, if I'm the final authority, i got to take care of it. I can't let you too closely into my world, which ultimately leads to loneliness. 19th century Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle, who actually was born in a Christian home, and when he went off to Oxford, rejected the Christian faith, said this toward the end of his life, isolation is the sum total of wretchedness to a man. He rejected a relationship with God. He allowed his emotional corruption to win the day, but then when it was all said and done, He hated the isolation in which he found himself. We are morally, spiritually, emotionally corrupted, but we're also behaviorally corrupted, are we not? Is your performance perfect 100% of the time? Do you always get it right? I don't know where Claire is. Claire, there's no way I'm going to try and see all those purple people, all that stuff you said, because there's no way in the world I get it right. I wondered why when when Nathan was asking about four-year-olds, my wife had her hand up. I can't quite understand what she was thinking there. That was a bit of a joke, but that's okay. Um, my performance at time is lacking, but I, I want to get it right so badly I can end up living a life of perfectionism. Saying, you know, it's just, it's got to be exactly right or it's not good enough, which then, which then sets me up for failure. I can't possibly get it right all the time. I can't possibly get it all right in one day, let alone an entire lifetime. Why? Because I am behaviorally corrupted. But we're also physically corrupted. That's the fourth of four observations I have here. You know, when you're born, you start in that development stage, right? And you grow and you get, you know, you get hair and you start to, you know, your, everything starts to work and you get teeth and you begin to eat and walk and say words and then there's sentences and, and you develop and you grow. You're growing up. That's a term we use. At some point, though, you reach the maintenance level, right, where you go, okay, this is about, you know, the, the best it's going to be. And then where you go, you go to decline. And quite frankly, some of y'all are a little confused about whether you're in decline or maintenance mode. So... I know I'm maintaining still, but I'm not sure about some of, of you. I had a guy who came up to me at the first service and goes, I just got a new knee about two months ago, so I've, I've totally turned from declining to, to maintaining. I'm, I'm so happy for you. That is, that is, that's so awesome. But 100% of the time, declining always leads to death. I know I'm not the first person to tell you this. You're going to die. If you're here and you're a teenager, you go to Kirkwood High School or other high school, you're like, man, I'm going to live forever. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> We're all going to die. We all face the grave. Why? Because our sin has led us into physical corruption. Now, you can debate whether or not God exists. You can debate whether or not the Bible is true. And anytime you want to have that conversation, I'm, I'd be more than thrilled to have it with you. But if you're going to be honest with yourself and with everybody else around you, there's, it is literally impossible to debate what I've just said. The corruption of mankind is so thorough that for thousands and thousands of years, no matter how much we put into education and every other idea that leaves Christ out of the mix, we fail. We are morally corrupt. We are emotionally, behaviorally, and physically corrupt. And until we see Jesus within that context, he will be of no use. But when we see him as the Christ, 
then it becomes very personal very quickly. Let me take you back to, uh, to just a few of these verses. Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations? Because man's condition is spiritually, morally, emotionally, behaviorally, and physically corrupted, we need a Savior. We need someone who can change the course of our very fabric of our being. We need to be transformed, and that's what the Christ does. The Christ came in order that we could have forgiveness in the name of Christ. So his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection, his glorification, isn't something interesting to talk about or, or reason to come to church and celebrate every once in a while. It reverses man's corruption. It brings an end to the emotional and spiritual, behavior, physical death, and it gives new and everlasting life. So Jesus says, friend, this is what you got to see. You got to get it. I didn't tell you all that bad stuff about us, which includes me. Make sure you understand that. The pastor's as bad as anybody else in this room. I didn't tell you all that to depress you on Easter, so when you got to brunch, you're a little bit sad. <laughs> I told you that. Jesus says, you got to see this in order so you can see the good news. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to give my very life. My death on the cross is my perfection exchanged for your imperfection. And so when Jesus says, was it not necessary? <laughs> Indeed, it was. That's why sometimes you'll meet somebody in Easter Sunday morning as a congregation will say, Christ has risen. And the response is what? He has risen. Indeed. Yes, it was necessary not only for it to die, but to raise, be raised back to life. His death and resurrection alone allows for this radical transformation of my condition and your condition through our repentance, which simply means acknowledging that those four things apply to us and agreeing that I don't want them anymore. <laughs> now, until I get to heaven, I won't be perfected, but, I, but I'm agreeing that I don't want them to control my life anymore. And then I seek God's forgiveness. I say, Lord, guilty is charged. But Jesus has paid the price. My trust is in him. And because you raised him back to life, I know you will raise me back to life too. I know that this is not a 40 or 50 or 60 year quick fix that, that goes away, but it lasts forever. You see, friends, it becomes very personal very, very quickly. This is not theory. This is about a story. This is about your story, my story, and our story in the context of a gracious and merciful God. Before Christ, for me, life was all about performance. And in your performance, you, you couldn't make mistakes. And if you made mistakes, it was, it was bad. It just wasn't accepted. Early in life, I think I tried to control my world by worrying and obsessing. And I think deep down, what I was trying to do was to keep from acknowledging my sin. I think I was trying to keep God at a distance and keep others at a distance because I didn't want to look inside myself and see something dark. My rebellion came because that was the only way that I knew how to, to survive. I, I come out of a, an abusive relationship after relationship at home. It was abusive and so for me, that was the only way that I could get through day to day. 
was by rebelling. I, I, was, I was at the end of my rope because I, I wanted what Christ had to offer. I mean, all, all these Christians kept telling me about this life with Christ and I just didn't get it. And I'm like, I've gone to two altar calls. What, what, what is this? I'm from Missouri, show me, you know? And so I'm walking down to my third altar call and I'm having it out with God. And, and, and that's when he starts hitting me in this, uh, in this secret place of all my mistakes. And he's like, Jeff, I see the pack on your back. I see all of that. I know you, not, not the image that you're showing everybody. And I love you anyway. When I would hear about God's love prior to being saved, um, it sounded good in theory, and the person that was talking to me was all cleaned up, and they looked like a church-going person, and I did not, and so I thought, it's perfect for you, it's good for you, and you can, you can go through life believing that, but for me, the roads of addiction, my sinful ways, I just did not feel that that a God, a God that they were talking about, that was so holy and so true, would not want me. How could he want me after everything that I had done? I never really doubted that Jesus was the Savior or that Christ had to die and rise from the dead. But I never understood what my sin had to do with that. I couldn't understand that my sin was serious or how someone dying on a cross and rising from the dead had anything to do with my sin. When it comes to justice and mercy, my sin had a cost. My sin was serious, is serious. It's incompatible with the holy God. And so a price had to be paid for it. Justice had to be served. God is just, and that's the good news. So that justice was served at the cross, but it was served on Jesus instead of me. So now from that moment, everything that I get, regardless of the circumstances, is mercy. Um, I know that I struggle, I make mistakes, and I'm not the only one in the world that uh, has to deal with their sin, their downfall, their doubts, their frustrations. And it's a great feeling to know that uh, I'm not alone. Uh, Christ is there with me. Um, he cares about me. He's, uh, he's saved me. I humbled myself before him, and when I finally felt Jesus say to me, you are my child and I love you, I felt that instantly, and I was so humbled by it that um, I left there feeling like I was walking on clouds. I know that the world is fallen, it is suffering, um, and I feel like without Christ, you don't have, there's nothing that can uh, fulfill you. Um, that it's a, it's a weird thought to think that Christ is never gonna leave, he's always there. Um, he's the one addiction that you can have. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in October of 2012. I had a brief moment of saying, you've got to be kidding me, God. Really? You know, I've got this little girl I'm raising, I'm a single mom. Um, my thought was I don't have energy to have cancer. But not for a second did I feel that God wasn't right there with me. Within hours, people from Green Tree were calling, offering food. I was hooked up with a Stevens ministry, amazing woman. Though I have been redeemed, 
in heaven, I won't have to wrestle with my sin, my doubt, my frustration, all that stuff. And that's a great, joyous feeling. It was, it was such a relief that I physically felt lighter. And for the first time in my life, I, I experienced a, a fulfilled promise. And not from somebody that I could see or I could shake hands with, but from, from God. You know, and it was, it was amazing. I know that God's got me. And, and that's not just a hope. Um, I mean, it's real. Um, the, the hope word, when we talk about it, um, I haven't had to struggle with hope through this time because I've known where, um, where my God's arms are and where he has me is exactly where I'm supposed to be today. And he's met every single one of our needs. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for these stories, uh, friends, folks that we know and love here in our spiritual family and just um, the way in which you work in lives uh, in good circumstances and in bad circumstances and in the difficult and dark moments as uh, well as in, in moments of, of youthfulness and energy and excitement. And, and you show us that being the Christ really means something for each one of us. So Lord, that's our prayer this morning is that, that you would, would be the Christ. Not in a theoretical way, um, but in a very personal way to each person in this room. Father, maybe there are folks here that have never said, I want you, Jesus, to be my Christ, to be my Savior, to be my Lord, to be my Redeemer. And if that's the case, uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just work in, in people's lives and just that they would know. I can just offer a simple prayer right now silently. And they put their faith in you and you will save, you will redeem. Lord, for those of us that have heard the story so many times and perhaps... Uh, we're a bit of going through the motions this morning. Father, help us to, uh, to marvel at, at this truth, to look in the mirror and to see what's looking back and to go, oh, that's just <laughs> less than perfect. <laughs> and yet to understand that those are the kind of people you love and that we would, again this morning, renew our hope, our trust, our rest, our faith in you for your glory and for the good of our souls forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let there be no higher name. Jesus.